and it's movie time! And I am your host, uh, Grayson. How are you all doing out there? It's like, a, so we had a small hiatus, and now we're back again uh, for another week. And of course, with my amazing host, Kente. Hey, Kente! Hey, how you doing? Uh, man, it's uh, uh, it's been a wonderful day today. Uh, beautiful, as always, in Southern California. Sunny southern california and um i'm just happy to chop it up with you and and talk some uh, movie time goodness absolutely and it's like i'm all, all excited about tonight because we have an amazing amazing guest in mr steve replin hey steve how are you doing hey my dear how are you i'm doing great and yeah. has it been a great day there too oh my gosh denver even the worst day in denver is always beautiful Yes, it's spectacular. I'm on the 10th floor of a building. I'm overseeing a beautiful sunset against the mountains. I mean, it is incredibly beautiful. So it was a great day. Oh, fantastic. And uh, just before we get started on our interview, Kente, how can people get a hold of us? Yes, uh, we love participation. And the one in a way that you can participate is you can come to our website, and that website is ndradio.org. Once again, that's indyradio.org. Another way that we can get participation, uh, receive participation, is you can call us, and the number is 323-522-4601. Once again, that number is 323-522-4601. And we are going to have an amazing conversation. So, Steve, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your company and a little bit more about your background? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Um, I practice in the areas of intellectual property, entertainment law, and business and corporate law uh, here in Denver for clients who are located both here and elsewhere throughout the country. Uh, in conjunction with that, I represent film producers and screenwriters and authors of books and, mm -hmm. um, oh my God, fashion designers, musicians, record labels, agents, managers. Um, no, it's just, it's the full, the full range of entertainment folks uh, in their business and fundraising needs. And it's just more fun than a person should have. I actually... I won't admit this to anybody, but uh, I should pay my clients. I have so much fun working on their projects. <laughs> but, of course, I won't admit that I ever said that. No, we, uh, we'll eke that out of, the, uh, out of there, too. Yeah, edit that out. Edit that <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah. That'll be edited out uh, accordingly. <laughs> good, 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 good. Yeah, so I was wondering, uh, you were talking about, uh, trade. Uh, we were talking a little bit about trademark and copyright, and so, like, what is the difference between trademark and copyright? Because a lot of people get that really confused. Oh, no, even my clients do, absolutely, uh, even after I tell them, actually. <laughs> so, a trademark is an identifier of a brand, basically. It's an identifier of what we call the source of goods or services. So, when you see Coca-Cola on the side of a can, you know that Coca-Cola uses um, a common formula. It's produced in accordance with certain standards. It comes from a Coca-Cola licensed bottler, and there are expectations of quality and taste, probably price as well. So that's a trademark is all about branding. A copyright, on the other hand, is not about branding, but rather about protecting the 
the reduction of creative thoughts and ideas into physical form. So, for example, you can copyright a book, mm -hmm. copyright a motion picture, because they are reduced to what's called a tangible form of expression. Whereas, if you sit and listen to a speech, and no one's recording that speech, the words as they come out of the speaker's mouth are not protected in the least because they are not being reduced to a tangible form of expression. So they are two very different forms of intellectual property and protected in very different ways with laws that pertain to each of them uh, separately. And very important for filmmakers and writers and believe it or not, of course, fashion designers and businessmen everywhere. I mean, they're, they're just ever-present and, and very, very critical. So if somebody, for example, was to uh, have their, uh, their company having a trademark, that doesn't necessarily cover their, uh, in terms of that with copyright. It's the physical work that is copywritten, not the idea, but the trademark is the brand of the company. Correct. Yes. Another way to say it. Good job. Hmm. Okay, and so like as filmmakers, should be should we be registering both the trademark and the copyright, or do uh, does one supersede another? Well, the answer to that is, I would say always, 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 always. Did I say always? Always, always. Copyright uh, the film, copyright the script, copyright the book upon which it was based, uh, copyright photographs. Um, Always protect your intellectual property in that way. And it's really, really easy to do now by uh, digital uploading to copyright.gov. The fees are reasonable. You don't really need to have a lawyer to do that. And it's, it's a simple process. Trademarks, on the other hand, may or may not be part of um, how a film gets put together. Because remember that a, a trademark actually is... Um, is all about the brand and a mm -hmm. single film does not represent a brand of anything. For example, when J.K. Rowling was doing, um, what's his name? Harry Potter, yeah. Harry Potter, exactly. The first one didn't represent a brand of anything because it wasn't multiple units of Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. hmm. So she could actually have filed a trademark application under the category of intent to use and then subsequently converted it into a trademark, an effective trademark, at some later date, within three years. Um, but most pictures, most motion pictures are one-offs. And if they're one-offs, then trademark law doesn't really apply. There may be times when you have a character within a film that you want to carry forward. James Bond, Harry Potter, uh, Mickey Mouse, you know, any of the serial types of productions <laughs> that trademark would be appropriate for. But barring those kinds of special circumstances, trademark is not really a part, typically, of uh, a motion picture's production. Now, I, I have a question. Um... Sure, I don't know if you are you familiar with this uh, boxing ring announcer. His name is Michael Buffer. He's known for saying, uh, let's get ready to rumble before the uh, the boxing matches. 
Um, I know he has it either copywritten or trademark. Which one would that be? Like a phrase that he's known for saying. Uh, it could be both. Could be both. But if it's a phrase that uh, he uses as his tagline, and he's known by that, like the Donald Trump, um, you're fired statement, mm -hmm. you know, it could well represent a trademark. Okay, so let me ask you a question. If there's somebody out there who's getting famous for saying a certain phrase, could yeah. could a person, if he hasn't trademarked it or copywritten it, could could a third party who has nothing to do with that then trademark it and copyright it? How sad is that? Yes, that was a great question, Ken. And because of that, you know, one of the things I always tell my clients is that before they start thinking of um, filing trademarks on names of companies or logos or taglines is to keep their thoughts and ideas to themselves as much as possible because it's really, I mean, there are lots of complexities to this, but it's the first to file, more or less, is kind of the winner. And again, there are lots of exceptions to that, but you don't want uh, somebody to tell you the name of their company before they've really put it together or a tagline and have that person say, hey, that's a pretty cool name. I think I'll just go grab that. Because names of companies are difficult to come up with. Taglines uh, are difficult to come up with. You know, it's all hard. And mm -hmm. fortunes have been made or lost, really, on the effectiveness of filings. You know, like, for example, Nike. Mm -hmm. What would happen if somebody had seen the swoosh before Nike got around to filing a trademark application for it and said, hey, I like that swoosh, and it filed the swoosh? You know, it would only have made a difference in Nike's fortunes by God knows how many billions of dollars. I know. Wow. So you should be very circumspect and, and use... Uh, if you're going to share your intellectual property with people before it's protected, you should always, 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 always use non-disclosure, non-circumvent agreements, which are tough to enforce, difficult to follow, um, you know, in terms of who tells who what. But it's really kind of the best that the law has to offer. I have one, one, one more question, too. Sure. What about outside of the U.S.? I know that recently there was an issue with uh, Michael Jordan, and I think it was a Chinese uh, uh, store or something was uh, using his likeness to sell things, and I believe he lost the case. Um, so outside of the U.S., uh, how does it work as far as uh, uh, intellectual property and uh, copyright infringement? Intellectual property is basically governed by the country uh, in which you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So there are some countries, for example, like the EU, that have a treaty and operate more or less as one unity. Uh, China is especially difficult because they are famous for not respecting the intellectual property rights of anybody at any time. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that includes themselves, <laughs> probably people in China who steal the copyrights and trademarks of even people in China. But um, so in order to protect yourself from an international standpoint, if you have a product that's about to go there, you need to allocate sufficient funds to and pick the countries in which your distribution is probably going to occur uh, first and then as it's rolled out, you know, second and thereafter. 
and start that trademark process and copyright process as early as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think you can spend enough money on protecting your intellectual property. It's really, uh, I'll get on my bandwagon here for just one quick second. You know, years ago in the 1900s, a lot of the wealth in this country was based upon real estate and smokestack mm-hmm. industries and high-rise buildings and such as that. And it's not so much anymore. The country's kind of built out. Uh, you know, still here in Denver, for example, there's a lot of tearing old buildings down and building apartment buildings and such as that. But the big fortunes, when you hear about a company that sells for a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there, typically they're based upon intellectual property. So it has become, in my opinion, the biggest single asset um, that's responsible for the biggest amount of wealth in this country in the last 10 or 15 or 20 years. And so I wouldn't take it lightly. Too many of my clients come in here and sit down and (laughs) this is really unbelievable. They sit down, they have a great name for the company, they have a great logo or they have a great tagline. And I say, you should trademark that immediately. They say, ah, why don't we just wait until we get the product on the market and see if it sells. And then, you know, maybe we'll think about trademarking. And I say to them, are you foolish? Once somebody in Indianapolis, you know, finds out the name if they like it and they do something about it before you do, you've got an uphill battle in protecting yourself. So, you know, it's really one of the most important things you can do. And one of the first things that I typically suggest my entrepreneurs do with their intellectual property. Copyright work. Yeah, because uh, long answer. Sorry about that. No, that is actually uh, very informative, that answer. And also, I was wondering, because you had mentioned in regards to trademarks and copyrights. With trademarks, you ha- they're renewable, where copyrights are, from what I understand, eternal uh, with regards nope, to that. Just the, just the reverse. Copyrights expire 70 years currently, 70 years after the death of the creator. Okay. Trademarks last forever, excuse me, as long as they are in use and you don't abandon them. So for, you okay. know, I mean, when did Coca-Cola start? I'm just going to guess in the early 1900s. Yeah. And yet their trademark is as strong today as it was back then. So also, uh, if a trademark is abandoned, does that, uh, does that imply that the work has been abandoned or just that particular trademark? And that no, trademark. Okay. Yeah, you lose your exclusivity to the use of the mark on your products or services. So if Coca-Cola said to itself, maybe what we ought to do is not produce Coke for 10 years and let's try carrot juice instead. And they hadn't used it and they hadn't filed anything with anybody at all um, concerning the name Somebody else could come along and maybe make a case for the fact that the mark has been abandoned. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, if they were successful, then Coke would have quite the uphill battle in trying to protect that particular mark with themselves. So, but the product remains. They don't mm-hmm. lose the right to produce Coca-Cola just because they may have lost the exclusivity to the name Coca-Cola. But somebody else could use Coca-Cola and... There would be nothing, eh, nothing that they could really do about it. 
nothing that somebody could, nothing that Coca-Cola could do under the Lanham Act, which is the trademark law. Okay. There are other ways that Coke would probably attack it, and there are causes of action called unfair business competition, and, you know, there are lots and lots of things that litigators would do uh, to attempt, as best they could, to protect the use of the name and to stop infringers as they would see them. But that's expensive. And, you know, small business can't afford to, to go through and enforce their rights like that. It's really pricey when you hire a litigator. What about uh, old stuff, older stuff like uh, Beethoven's music or William Shakespeare? Uh, how does that work with as far as copyright? Yeah, another great question, Ken. Um, they are in what's called the public domain. And the public domain consists of material that is not subject to any type of protection and is basically available for the use of anyone, anywhere, for any purpose. I mean, because Mozart or Beethoven probably <laughs> doesn't have heirs that are hunting around for the use. I mean, I don't know when were they alive in the late eighteen in the late eighteenth century or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So clearly, those are, you know to the extent that they even had copyright laws. In Beethoven's case, where was he from? Austria or Germany? Uh, back then, which I'm sure they probably did not, uh, long since the protection has lapsed. And so those fall into the, the public's available use of any of that material. So long as it's not, uh, it's like, though certain symphony companies like for example with Beethoven's works can copyright their uh, their interpretation of the work but they can't yeah, copyright the physical right right they can't take Beethoven's uh, fifth and say no this is uh, this is ours it's like no the way that you played it was yours absolutely and nobody can reproduce that without your permission however that work is public domain right Nice distinction. Exactly right. And actually, public domain material represents a huge source of inspiration for screenwriters. Right. So they'll take novels and short stories that have fallen out of copyright protection and use it as the basis for you know, their drafting, writing, creating a screenplay. Very cool. Now, we had also talked a little bit about the NDNCs and when they were appropriate. Um, you know, with digital becoming like such a popular venue and with the websites that are able to post work and stuff like that and that it's becoming more transparent, the mm -hmm. way, uh, is there ways like to protect the, uh, the work and information or is it implied like once you put it out there that it's accessible? Well, once you put it out there, you better have gone through and done what you can given the kind of work that it is to protect it because once it's out there if it's not been registered in the appropriate way whether it's a trademark a copyright or a patent then it's more or less fair game for people so you really better and these are generalities I mean there are a hundred exceptions to each of those rules but in general you should protect it before you display it or show it to other people or use it so, you know, that's, I, I think that there's a, there was a strong movement, which has calmed down, to believe that anything that's been published on the Internet 
becomes available for anybody's use. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, obviously the cases around YouTube where, remember the, there was a well-known case about, I think there was a little baby that was dancing in the kitchen and the Rolling Stones, uh, you know, were playing in the background. Mm-hmm. And it's very cute and got zillions of hits. Well, you know, photographing the baby was great and no problem at all because the mom did it and she owned the rights to do it. But the Rolling Stones, on the other hand, owns, own, right, the rights, yes. copyrights in their music and lyrics. And so can't do that. But people believe, hey, it's out there. Why can't I use it? Yeah, and... Uh this uh, this came to our discussion earlier about tributes and tribute in, uh, bands like tribute information and stuff like that. Therefore, it's like it's filmmakers knowing our copyrights uh, in that right. uh, way and knowing what is public domain works. Who do you ask? Where do you ask? That's yeah. things that also it's like having a good legal attorney helps. Exactly. Well, I will tell you something that it's a pretty trendy area of the law right now and very very important. Um, it's called orphaned works. So what if uh, life plus 70 years is a long time, mm-hmm. especially with people living till their 80s, their 90s, and sometimes even into the hundreds. So you could have a right uh, that lasts for 170 years. And in that time period, as people die and as the identification of the ownership of the copywritten material gets separated from the material itself, as in a case, in the case of a piece of artwork, for example. If you mm-hmm. wanted a piece, if there was a piece of art hanging on your wall, and we were filming part of the motion picture in your office there, and mm-hmm. the art became part of the, you know, became part of the motion picture, how would we find out who was the artist? Right. Well. There's a substantial amount of material out there that may have been copywritten, but um, can't be traced to a particular author. And so those are called orphaned works. So they're orphans because you can't really easily identify their parents, so to speak, right? Their creator. And in those cases, you really have to convince a judge, how sad is that, that you have done everything that's reasonably possible to look for the creator. Did you search the copyright records in any way you could? Did you search for, you know, someone who, how did you find the artwork? Did you buy it from a gallery? Did they know who first did, you know, did it? Have you tracked down family members that might be still living? Um, Have you made attempts to contact all of those people? You should keep copies of every single action you take to try to find people. And as a last resort, and I don't think too many people do this, but you could actually put aside a small fund that mm-hmm. would cover a royalty, a reasonable royalty, in the event that somebody came forward anytime in the future and said, hey, that happens to be my grandfather or something like that. Yeah. So, so that if he or she sued you and said, look, you've infringed on my grandfather's picture, at least you can show the court that, look, you made every reasonable effort to find somebody. Oops, sorry yep. about the thing there. 
Um, and um, and furthermore, you've even gone so far as to set aside an amount of money that you deemed reasonable, you know, to pay them if anybody came forward. No judge, I don't believe, could ever really say that you are a malicious infringer in that case because you've tried everything that's reasonable. So orphaned works big and getting bigger all the time as the the term of copyright lengthens. You know, it's easier for the work to get separated from the creator. And even locating the creator at times, it can it, you have to make every sincere effort to try and get in touch with the creator by any means necessary. Well, it's especially difficult in, in for example, photographs. I mean, where on an average photograph is the name of the photographer located? True. No place, right? So if you find a photograph someplace, right, without identification, and you said to yourself, that's a terrific image, I want to use it, how would you even go about finding the owner? So photographs are particularly difficult. And, you know, others are of varying degrees of difficulty based upon, uh, you know, whether they've been kind of identified at all. Artwork sometimes is a little bit easier because occasionally you'll have the author, you know, the artist rather, that signs the, the picture. But photographs, they very rarely do. Now, Interesting area, actually. Now, here's, a, here's another uh, situation uh, that I've always been interested in, and I think tonight I might get uh, some clarity on this. Uh -huh. um, I don't know if you're familiar, but uh, very recently, and it, there's a history of this, but um, there were, in 2008, uh, the group The Foo Fighters had issue with uh, John McCain using their song My Hero. And uh -huh. um, and so they, you know, they pub very publicly because they were going for uh, President uh, who became President Obama. And there's a long history of uh, musicians and groups upset that, you know, certain politicians are using their songs when they, you know, when before they give a speech. I think the idea is that they think that maybe they don't want the public to think that I'm somehow supporting this candidate. So does a musician or a band, do they have any kind of protection when it comes to a, a politician using their music as like background music during their performances? I mean, their uh, speeches. Well, sure. I mean, the Foo Fighters own the copyrights to the song, right? Right. And to be able to just come in and use it um, without asking permission is a big problem. Right. So I think the song was called My Hero. Mm -hmm. It was done in 1997. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in a clear statement, uh, they said that Republican Senator John McCain wasn't their hero easy either. <laughs> so, you know, here's some language. To have it appropriated without our knowledge and used in a manner that perverts the original sentiment of the lyric just tarnishes the song. Right. So. Well, know, it's Survivor's Eye of the Tiger case. Exactly. Exactly. It's a real problem. So, you know, you have to really be there to protect and enforce your, your intellectual property rights. Otherwise, they could fall into the public domain. I, I tell you, uh, uh, I'm not a musician, but if I was, and 
you know, certain candidates that are out there, if they use my music for their entry music, I'd probably throw up before I, uh, calling my attorney. <laughs> so Right, uh, right, know. right, right. Yeah, lawyers love that. So <laughs> I do that at all costs. <laughs> I'm just kidding you. I'm just kidding. It's like, uh, and nobody please hack at our radio show. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's one Actually, I think I'm, I'm looking at some stuff here, and um, John Cougar Mellencamp mm -hmm. uh, was equally as taken by McCain, and McCain backed off and said that after Mellencamp came along and said, "You can't use my, you can't use my song," McCain said, "Okay, it's not going to play our country or Pink Houses at his events." So that was, you know. That was a good resolution, to tell you the truth. But there are lots and lots of uh, cases that have, that have uh, resulted from the unauthorized use of others' intellectual property. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And it's like it, it also makes sure it's like they also don't sit there and they don't disclaimer either, unfortunately, in political rallies. that no. They just do the actual songs themselves without putting any disclaimers forward. What would the disclaimer read like it would say um, we, have we, are, uh, we are using the song for promotional purposes the artist in no way has expressed support nor uh, nor opposition to this uh, to this piece well to the uh, or to the representative that this well, music is a, chanting in <laughs> but as a you know i would i would word it as follows i would say um we have stolen the music <laughs> of you too, or of John Cougar Mellencamp, or of the Rolling Stones, and have been using it without their permission or consent, and so heck with them. And if they should discover that we have used this, then let them try to come after us, and we'll use somebody else's. We'll steal somebody else's music. I mean, what kind of a disclaimer? <laughs> it's just really, you know, it's a tough one. It's, you gotta, it's like, you gotta it's tell better, the truth. what do they say? The old adage that it's better to ask uh, forgiveness than ask permission? There you go. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you got to tell the truth in the, yeah. in the best way possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That so, is funny. You know, in general, if you don't want to end McCain's campaign, I'm sure back then was well-financed. And if he, if he, uh, or if the, or the uh, Foo Fighters, rather, I'm sure, you know, had significant capital reserves in which to sue him for mm -hmm. copyright infringement, which I, you know, I didn't follow that case particularly. But, you know, when you get big mm -hmm. money, it's big money. Sometimes it's the principle of the thing that governs as opposed to the law. And if you're in a case where you've got some principled person on the other side, man, as they say in uh, New York, forget about it, man. You could spend a million bucks on this stuff. It's just absurd. So mm -hmm. better to do it right. You know, we often hear about uh, certain companies that have, like, their bulldogs looking for copyright infringements. And the one oh. that you always hear about is Disney like Disney's uh, really hardcore? You always hear about them uh, stopping some uh, third grade uh, 
uh, book fair or something like that that they use. Oh, that's because <laughs> Disney owns everybody's brain. Right. Every idea has to be Disney's. Absolutely. They right. own it all. So. You, you always hear they took some uh, lollipop out of some kid's mouth or, you know, something like yeah, that. Of course. Of course. Well, you know, part of the obligation that comes with the ownership of intellectual property is the obligation to police, P-O-L-I-C-E, to police your marks because the trademark office nor the copyright office provide that service. And if, if you allow others to use your mark or something that's confusingly similar without objecting and trying to shut them down with cease and desist letters and as a last resort litigation, then somebody at some point could come into a court and say, you know, they've been letting people use Mickey Mouse, for example, for 10 years now, and they've never tried to shut them down. In my opinion... In, you know, somebody who is litigating, in in somebody's opinion, that indicates to them that they've abandoned their um, exclusivity over the image of Mickey Mouse or whatever the issue is. So that's why Disney's intellectual property is worth trillions of dollars. I don't know if there's enough money in the universe actually mm -hmm. to buy the rights to Mickey Mouse. Well, maybe if they sell Walt's uh, cryogenically frozen head. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But they have to protect it, and because of that, they have, you know, a gaggle of lawyers that are out there doing just that all the time. You know, um, I know that when Disney bought uh, LucasArts, uh, the fan community was very frightened because one thing that uh, George Lucas, uh, he was very loose about allowing people to make like uh, fan videos and fan art and stuff based on Star Wars universe. So the fan community got scared because they know how hardcore Disney is about protecting, mm -hmm. protecting. And, um, you know, I, I haven't heard too much uh, about, you know, what's happened since they've, you know, they, they have Disney. I mean, they have uh, LucasArts. Um, so the question is, is like once the uh, copyright has been transferred over to another company, um, do, do companies have, do, do they go with the old standards of the old company or is it, you know, or do they have a way to integrate it or does it change with the new company? Well, the smart ones will protect their intellectual property because of that obligation to police mm -hmm. the mark mm -hmm. and, you know, shut infringers down before they have a claim that you've abandoned, you know, your exclusive rights to the mark. Mm -hmm. So George Lucas may, you know, it might be a marketing strategy. Right. Maybe he says, you know, if we let fan clubs use marks and don't try to shut them down and don't appear to be too difficult to work with, Maybe that works to the betterment of the whole brand, mm -hmm. so it builds so. brand equity. Whereas Walt Disney is got a very different attitude. You can tell from their um, enforcement activities. You know, when they have a great piece of intellectual property, as Mickey Mouse, for example, it's the biggest thing they've got. I'm sure um, they are going to shut down every third grader, fourth grader, their teachers, their parents, their grandparents. They're descendants from the Mayflower. I mean, you they go for it. It's yeah. important. And that's why they have this valuable piece of intellectual property that, you know, is incontrovertibly owned by them. That's right. So it's a, yeah. you know, it's a brave new world with intellectual property. 
it is. And Steve, just to change a little bit of uh, gears, you had also mentioned that you uh, deal with a variety of people in your firms as well in regards to how, uh, like, what kind of budget ranges and stuff like that do you take on with artists? And is there, like, projects uh, and genres that you would and would not take? Great question, dear. Um, you know, I actually, uh, <laughs> much like a physician, my motto with my clients is do no harm. And if you have a real low-budget independent production that comes and their production budget is $5,000 or $10,000, you can't really, in good, I can't, in good conscience, bill them for the legal work that is needed because the rights and permissions are the same uh, whether the budget is a dollar, a million, or a hundred million. So I typically don't like the lower budget productions just because of that. And when I say to them what the legal fees would be, that of course they can't afford it, and it just grieves me knowing that they're going out there to complete a project uh, just asking for trouble if the project should become successful. So, you know, I would say this is just a subjective little guess that – until you've got a low-budget film that's probably $200,000, $150,000, $250,000, something like that, or more, mm -hmm. there's not enough money in the budget to really do what they need to in terms of rights, permission, protection, you know, all the uh, ancillary agreements, location releases, and so on and so forth that you need. So my favorite projects are those that can be done correctly. Mm-hmm. So that's what I really like. And in the world of, um, well, in the world of entrepreneurialism, just in general, I think the same thing is uh, certainly the case. You know, if you've got two women who come in to start a business and they've got some terrific creative ideas about what they're going to do and how they're going to do it and what their brand is and the logo is going to be, you know, it grieves me when... They come in with just great material, you know, smart people, and they don't choose to allocate their funds to what ultimately is going to become their most valuable asset. So I don't think there's a minimum for entrepreneurs. Um, it's just a matter of how they choose to allocate their startup capital, really. So you actually like to come in at the beginning of the project uh, oh. during that, uh, that phase to be able to help them out with that. Absolutely. I mean, I'll take them at any phase, but I feel a lot better when I can get them on the, going on the right road, you know, from the very inception of the project. Because sometimes it's hard to come back and do cleanup work, um, you know, in arrears. So I had somebody, this is kind of a funny story. Mm -hmm. I had somebody who had produced a documentary, and the documentary consisted of six uh, videographers out on the streets shooting interviews and, you know, filming life in a community and so on. Yes. Yes, bless you. Um, and they patched it together and threw some music on it, and they got some interest from a distributor. So all this while, I was not their counsel. The distributor said, what we want is an opinion letter from a lawyer that said that you've gotten all the rights and permissions that you need. So that's when they come to me. 
and said, oh, all we need is just a one-page letter. You know, it's just a paragraph that says, hey, this is pretty cool. Everything is done correctly. And I said, well, before I do that, why don't you just show me, um, you know, what you put together so far? And I start looking at this. And while it is handsomely done, no doubt about it, you can only imagine that if you're shooting in the downtown area of a city, what do you get? You get people, you get copyrighted material, you get trademarks, you get music, and especially if you're going to do person-on-the-street interviews, and they zoom in on somebody and say, what do you think about this? And they're on the screen for 45 seconds or longer. Uh-huh. So I started to look at that with the producer, and I said, okay, tell me about this guy with the, uh, you know, the blue jeans and the sweatshirt. And they had a book, and they looked at it, and they said, oh, you know, blue jean sweatshirt. Yeah, well, here is, here's what that is. Okay. Okay, the next one was a girl with a red skirt and a, <coughs> excuse me, and a white sweater. And they looked, and they said, you know, no, we don't have a release or a permission from her. I said, well, you know, the town had a population of three million people. I said, why don't you just go find her, and let's get that before I can sign off on this. And of course, then they're doing a downtown stroll with cameras on, and uh, they do actually have beer signs that have been trademarked. They have advertising. So the bottom line to this story is I couldn't write a letter like that because they really didn't have what they needed. And the distributor would have been exposed to litigation uh, for invasion of privacy and uh, copyright and trademark infringement had the distributor taken that project on. So didn't work. So they yeah. put a magnificent piece together and you know they were unable to fall inside the range of fair use and please don't ask me about fair use. It could take up yeah. you know the next six months. But uh, so there were no exceptions for them. Wow. They ended up with a beautiful project that was about to go nowhere. This is very sad. And all because they forgot to get the releases of permissions. Exactly. Exactly. So it, it's, it's one so of those important. Like, one of those things like, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> you know, they spend hundreds of person hours on shooting, editing, and marketing uh, for not because it was ready, fire, aim, which is really a horrible thing. And that's when they brought me into the project after the fact in a way that there was no way to make it up because of course there was no way to identify the 150 or 200 people they had interviewed in a 110 minute picture they just didn't know where they're going to find them so that's when you have the ad who stands there with the release prior to having them on camera saying would you please sign this documentation realizing you may or may not be part of this video but you're releasing your image and everything that you have said on the image that's why i'm urging every filmmaker who's listening to hire you as the first ad <laughs> you're it you got it yeah it's like, so, and a little it, it, full employment Thank you. <laughs> and when I direct, it's like I make sure it, when I'm producing and directing, it's like at every single thing, no matter it be location, it be 
every single thing within that location. If if you are uncertain, the words, you know, block it out is the is the key. Yeah. You know, a little bit of blur with some Photoshop it goes yes. a long, long way. Yes, yes, it does. And you know, remember the example because this was a life, you know, a life example of a client of mine. Uh, this was a film that was produced for one of those lower budget numbers. I can't remember how much it was a number of years ago, but it was a number of talking heads inside of a house. And so they found some very nice fellow to let him use the house. And in the house was artwork, lots of artwork. This guy just was a collector and loved it. And Well, he, he didn't, and they didn't remember, to take the artwork off the wall. So every scene had some artwork that was a piece collected by the owner of the house. And so they had to find out. Luckily, the owner knew who, whose art it was. But they had to go through and find out whose art it was. And then they got permission from the heirs because it was a deceased artist. You know, so they were lucky in that one. So as you're... You know, one of your charges as a first AD or as a director is to notice those things and yeah. take care of them in advance. Because otherwise your distributor gets really ticked at you. Oh, it's bad, 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 bad. Yeah. 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 And again, if you're not sure, make sure you blur out the photo in the oh. back or the poster. It's oh. like a, it's worth doing it. It's something that's going to save millions upon millions of dollars in the long run. Your investor in particular is going to not be happy with you if, you know, she puts up a quarter of a million or half a million for your project and you get the news from your newfound lawyer that he can't or she can't write an opinion letter and hence you've got a project can't be commercialized. I think somebody who puts up that kind of money, their next call would be to their lawyer. And mm -hmm. you would be called a defendant. Not a good thing. You do not want to be called that. No. no. Um, this is also the times when also your guarantor will come in and realize it as well for you. It's like you'll get a nice little visit from them on set as well, telling you it's like, um, I'm not seeing releases here. You're making my investors very worried. Absolutely. Absolutely. So and that means copyright, copyright. So other than releases as well, um, you mentioned that you like working, for example, with start uh, startup companies as well as. So what are the, some of the things that when a potential filmmaker or startup company comes to you and uh, with their uh, for the initial meeting, what would you want to have uh, there other than also their releases as well? In terms oh. of a package to put in front of you that would entice you to want to say, hey, we got something here. Let's work together. You are so smart. Mm -hmm. um, I think if I could actually get into their heads before they came to the initial appointment, I'd certainly want to see their resumes. I'd want to see some semblance of a business plan and a budget. And this goes for this is not just film. This is anything, really. Uh, what are you going to do? What's going to cost? How do you plan to fund it? Um, you know, how are you going to produce a product? How are you going to sell it? Uh, what intellectual property do you have that, you know, could be protectable or otherwise? Who are the owners of the company? How did they become owners? Did they actually invest dollars or did you give them their interests? 
for services? Um, are you an entity? Big, big, big question. You know, are they uh, an LLC or a corporation or something else that will limit their liability? You know, you, you never, never, never want to be in business without having an entity around you uh, because of the liability protection that it affords. Otherwise, your Swiss chalet and your Learjet are at risk of your business. You'd hate to have a creditor come in and, you know, seize your, your car, <laughs> seize your car, your plane, your home, and everything else you've got. So, anybody who thinks that they can be out there without having a fully uh, and completely put together entity is a, a very silly human being. So, and you know, it's not just a matter in, in Colorado. What mm -hmm. what the the first step is in forming a corporation or an LLC is to go on the Colorado Secretary of State's website, and it costs fifty dollars, and you file what are called articles of organization for an LLC or articles of incorporation for a corporation. And they tromp in so proud, these new clients, and say, well, we're protected because we filed. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not just the filing. As a matter of fact, the filing is only the first of many steps that it takes to have a fully protectable uh, entity, an entity that really does the job that it's supposed to do. So, you know, you, you need bylaws or operating agreements, minutes, employee identification numbers, agreements with people, uh, elections. I mean, there are, there's a lot that's involved with that. Shareholder you, agreements. Oh, totally. If you don't have those things in place, if you need them, then you kind of could face the issue of having what's called a disregarded entity if you ever end up in court. And that would be something where uh, the judge would say, Hey, Ken, I see you've got Ken LLC in California. Show me the rest of your documents. And Ken says, no, you know, I didn't need to hire no stinking lawyer. I just did that online in California. And the judge would say, well, in that case, we are going to assume that there is no entity. And we're going to take that 20,000 square foot house that you have, Ken, in Beverly Hills. Your 85-foot sailboat, no. Marina Del Rey, is going to be the creditors also. Oh. And uh, have a nice day. Maybe you'll do it better next time. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. careful. Yeah, they disregard anything that doesn't have any sort of at least minutes of meetings, corporate documents that show that it's also a legal company, that you didn't just set it up just to be a company so that you take away your own liability. For sure, for sure. That, have tax returns, people. Tax, tax returns. returns. Tax returns are super important. And oh. in Colorado, is it seven years? Uh, I know that in Canada, it's seven years for uh, for businesses. I'm guessing that also in the states as well, seven years for business files to keep. In general, in general, it is that. And you know, if you're really a cautious person and conservative, um, I would keep them longer than that. You know, if you have a mini storage place that costs twenty-five or thirty-five dollars a month, put them in a box and throw them in there, and hope you never have to look at them. But you know, you'd hate to be asked by somebody for an old agreement and not have it, because reconstructing, reconstructing that stuff sometimes is impossible to do. 
But tax records, absolutely. Always keep tax them for seven years. Absolutely. Seven years, totally for sure. Yes. And uh, so what are some of the legal challenges that, uh, that you face with a lot of filmmakers in regards to distribution, for example? You know, like uh, in the last five years, distribution has so changed with the digital world as well as also the new uh, avenues that distribution is available. So it must be become uh, a very hairy nightmare with virtual reality, uh, like with virtual reality, other things that are invading in the landscape. So how's it changing the legal field? Oh, God, distribution is uh, is really such an exciting area now because it's it's changes have given access to ways to monetize a project that the projects never had in the past. In the past, you know, in the 1900s, you may remember those, the ancient days, if you weren't produced by a studio or somebody that had uh, distribution connections, then you didn't have access to theatrical distribution and really you didn't have a lot of alternatives to that. You could sell them out of your garage or your, you know, the back seat of your car, but there weren't any other options before mm -hmm. digital distribution. Today, on the other hand, there are hundreds and hundreds of outlets for content and it's really opened up an entirely new and exciting area that changes continually about where you might go to license or sell your content. So I think distribution is just one really exciting area. What I've started to do is uh, help my clients put together marketing, distribution marketing plans. Because my theory is if I can help them put together some thoughts and some really well-founded planning for how they're going to monetize their project, it's going to make a potential investor feel a lot better. Because one of the things I would always ask as, a, as an investor is, well, how am I going to get my money back? And if they have an answer that is logical and you know, indicates that they've thought about how to market a project, I'm always going to be more impressed. And, you know, and those are the projects, actually, I love to work on as a lawyer and as an investor. Well, it's also knowing your target audience because… Sure. It's no. It's knowing that, knowing how you're going to market to them. What do they like to hear? Is there, uh, in terms of their marketing, how do they like to receive their information? It's like if you don't know them, you, it's like that's how a lot of campaigns tend to fail. Is that they'll hit and they hope that they find an audience as opposed to having a gunned audience. Oh, you know what that's it. called? Ready, fire, aim. Yeah, it's pathetic to go ahead and spend money without knowing how you're going to have a shot of getting it back and having a successful project. It's ridiculous. It's kind of like years and years and years ago, uh, you're too young to remember this, but Ford developed a car called the Edsel. Mm -hmm. It was named after Henry Ford's son or grandson, and it actually wasn't a bad-looking car, I thought, but... Obviously, they didn't do any market research before they brought the car to market. And if, when it hit mar the market, apparently, you know, I was very young at that time, um, buyers and dealers said, oh, it's so ugly, we can't sell that to anybody. 
And it, it turned out to be a colossal flop that cost Ford Motor Company, at that time even, probably hundreds of millions of dollars. So it happens to small companies and big companies that it's, you know, ready, fire, aim. Somebody gets a wild hair up their, uh, you know, rear end and says, oh, I think this is a great project. Let's just go do it. And because they're in a position of authority or have the money or access to the money, then everybody just hops on the bandwagon because they're going to get paid and who cares if it's successful. Well, you can't do that with investors' dollars. You just can't do that. You have to show uh, a case for support, as they call it. You know, you have to say, hey, we want your money to produce and distribute this project because the niche that we're going after are you know, consists of 300,000 cattle ranchers that live between Texas and Canada. And, mm -hmm. you know, these are the folks who are going to come to this motion picture because it's a topic that's germane to their business or their hobbies or interests. It's always better. Now you can niche things so much easier because you can get to those niches. So it makes distribution a very exciting game. I love it. Really and also sales projections uh, also help as well to sell out a project as well. So yes. in good or bad, it's always good to have sales projections coming forward. Absolutely. But based on something. I mean, not just based on some thin air uh, swag, sweet wild ass. Yeah. You know, Qualified so. sales representative that has been accredited for being able to do those figures. Right. Exactly. So I think distribution is a is a new frontier, and I love it. And I love helping my clients kind of plan on how they're going to get into the whole thing and negotiate the waters filled with sharks and come out the back end with uh, you know a, a product aimed at a niche that becomes very successful. Absolutely, and it's like it, so. How do you think that also virtual reality is going to change this environment too? It's a new. It's coming up as a brand new player in the game. Virtual reality. Oh my God! I have no idea whatsoever. I have no idea. Virtual reality. Tell me what you mean by that. You're like holographic material. Correct. Uh, we're no longer going to stick to only 3D. We're going to start becoming a more interactive experience with our film. Well, to the extent they can perfect that technology, I mean, it's just another example of how distribution and monetization of content is uh, becomes more exciting and more available to people. That's pretty exciting to think about. I mean, I have never had a client yet who has utilized any kind of technology like that, but, but it's pretty neat. I, well, actually, that's not true. I had somebody who was buying a bar in a restaurant, mm -hmm. and uh, you can buy holographic projectors uh, that will, let's see, so what were they going to do? They were going to put a stage at one end of the restaurant, and then they were buying holographic video material, and mm -hmm. with a little bit of smoke or something to thicken the air, the images were awesome. And so what they were going to do is they were going to have Frank Sinatra singing one night, and Dean Martin singing the next night, and Mick Jagger the next night, and you know, John Cougar Mellencamp the next night. And, and it's like, there they are, right? Because they were shot appropriately or converted over. And I thought it was a great idea, actually.
they ended up never buying the bar. So, too bad. But great idea. That's the closest I came to it. Hmm. And it definitely will wind up changing a lot of uh, ways that people are going to be viewing film in this uh, in the future, and how di- distributors will be distributing film. I think that it's like, you know, having the projections come right at you, that you could practically jump into the TV. I know, that's cool. That's very, very cool. I mean, that that gets me excited. It's yet another and a potentially very large area for distribution. That's very, very neat. I know that also, for example, corporate sponsorship has also changed the way that funding models are also happening. And it, it's like the far vaster uh, co-productions uh, models as well. What does that do for the jurisdiction of handling things in terms of copyrights, in terms of also the legals as well in a production? When you, it, like, Does that mean that you have to have now multiple attorneys or uh, multiple type agreements because uh, – for example, you know, when you're working with different countries, different traditions of what they consider legal, and also with corporate sponsorship coming into there as well, different corporations that are also coming in as funding models, and of course they want their products in there as well. Does this suddenly change the lens, the the way that legals happen? It's like as multiple attorneys going to have to be involved. Well, the sponsor will have their counsel, obviously. And the producer or the production company will have their counsel. And it's funny that you should mention that because I represent um, a nationally touring group of uh, piano and other entertainment folks, piano players and comedians and so on and so forth. And we are in the process right now of reaching out for corporate sponsorship. And they are attracting some incredible interest because there are so many eyeballs that they get every time they do a corporate event or they do, you know, some kind of a private party that's a big, fancy, upscale, affluent group um, and things such as that. And so what we do is we prepare a sponsorship agreement based upon what the sponsor gets in return, whether it's, you know, some kind of banner coverage or wrapping of vehicles or... Um, sampling of a product at the event or couponing or, you know, whatever is appropriate for that particular product or service. And the client company that's providing the sponsorship, which is always mm-hmm. always dollars, by the way, is that what we're looking for? Um, you know, they they have done it in the past, in most cases. And so they have the format of how they like to do it and so they have their counsel draft, you know, what they want in exchange for a quarter of a million dollars or a hundred thousand or whatever they're going to use. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, and it, corporate sponsorship can come from any place at any time and for any reason. So what was it? I didn't see the movie, but you may remember one years ago called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory mm-hmm. that I've always heard was nothing more than a big commercial for Nestle's chocolates or Hershey's chocolates or something like that. Um, So you can only imagine what must have happened is that one of the chocolate companies sponsored the bulk of the production. And as the result, you know, their products were figured, you know, were featured prominently from the first opening shot until the rolling of the final credits. Oh, most definitely. It's a chocolate commercial, so I've heard. 
also, uh, I have a couple more questions uh, for you, if you don't mind. It's Ooh. like, can we also speak a little bit also to the formulas of financing structures and exit strategies that absolutely. have been both successful? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm going to assume that you want me to focus on film. Um, Correct. And so... You know, I have always been one that has wanted to make sure that my filmmakers are um, treating the investors as well as possible. Because if you treat an investor uh, the best that you can, then you reduce your risk of litigation and you increase your uh, potential of having them come back over and over again to participate in more projects. So. I try to allocate the bulk of first proceeds back to the investors until they've received not only their principal back, but some return on that. And then I try to keep their participation after they've received their return back on their initial principal uh, to something that's really exciting so that their potential upside is outstanding. Now, that varies from project to project because you know, if you're producing a film for 300,000 cattle ranchers that are from Houston to uh, Rapid City or something like that, or Fargo, then, mm -hmm. you know, likely the most the film could reasonably gross would be X dollars, whatever that number is. And so you want to make sure that in that number, you know, should you get your fair share of, um, of ticket sales, that there's enough for investors to be excited about, uh, you, of course, as the producer, have enough money oops, that you, of course, have enough money to have made it worthwhile as a project. So it really becomes a win-win for everybody. Definitely. So I, I, you know, I can't give you numbers to live by because it's kind of a project-by-project -project basis. But as a general formula, I like to get my investors their money back as fast as I can. And I like to get them a preferential return as fast as I can. And then I like them to have... As possible. Yes, if possible, of course. I like to you know, give them very, very significant participations thereafter. And I think it's the greedy filmmaker... Definitely. It's, like, it's quite important that they all get. It is. It's very, very important. And yet I always have you know, early-stage filmmakers who will say... No, 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 no. That's too much for them to make. Oh, too much for them to make. It's impossible that there's too much for them to make. I mean, you know, there but for those folks, there is no, there's no completed project. So, you know, I, I always try to convince them that that's the way to go. In, there we go. In these kinds of structurings. Definitely. Yes. And then what was your second, what was the second part to that was exit strategies. Well, I think the conversation about exit strategies is probably more important for an investor in an entrepreneurial project because people's exit strategy in the film is a very different thing to discuss. I think they want to get their money back as quickly as possible and that's then they have accomplished and exit strategies. They got their money back. And from there on, you know, they're playing with the house's money, more or less, as they would say in Las Vegas. And so it would just go for as long as the project was producing revenues. 
in the context of an entrepreneurial experience that is not film related, then you have a beginning of a project, a growth phase, and you really need to talk to the, you know, the entrepreneurs themselves to understand what their thoughts are. And is that going to end up being, oops, are you there? Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah then you, you need really to understand what the principles uh, exit strategy is. And if they're 20 something years old and they want to keep this and grow it for the rest of their lives, which could be very lengthy and you are a 50 year old investor, well, maybe you need to negotiate something different out of that deal because, you know, they've got 60 years ahead of them and you don't. So the exit strategy discussion is very important to have and to think about and to have good counseling uh, when you're dealing with entrepreneurs. Filmmaking, the exit strategy is to get your money back, really, and thereafter to share in profits if there are any. Yeah, you know, that's the big thing, right, to, uh, to get that, yes. get your money back. Yeah, that's the big deal, right? Yes. Yeah, good. Hi. Mm-hmm. So, uh, also, uh, it's like uh, I'm hoping that you'll come and join us once again uh, in a couple weeks' time if you could. Oh, I would us. love it. It's a lot of fun. I'd love it. And also, Steve, how is it that people get a hold of you? Oh, thank you, dear. Um, they can either contact me by email, and my email address is S as in Steve, Replin, R E P as in Paul, L I N, at Replin, again, R E P as in Paul, L I N, and the last name is Rhodes, R H O A D E S dot com, S Replin at replinroads.com. Or by calling my office directly, which is 303-322-7919. Again, 303-322-7919. And I would love to talk to anybody out there about their projects, their future, their concepts, their budgeting, whatever it is that's on their mind. I love the business. So, (coughs) excuse me. So I am there for our clients in all respects. Mm-hmm. And Kinte, how do they get a hold of you? Yes, uh, of course, you guys can always come to uh, IndieRadio.org. That's IndyRadio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Kente F. And uh, please stay tuned because in 15 minutes, we will be having the Infectious Geek Show. And they'll be talking horror films. <laughs> Absolutely. And also, uh, you can reach me on, uh, as you know, Facebook. Um, we have at the uh, movie indie. Uh, let's not forget that. Mm-hmm. As well, our brand new Twitter, which eventually, as I said, I will learn how to tweet. Uh, uh, for all of us people who it's like our tweeting challenged. <laughs> and do it either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm tweet challenged, but uh, it's like uh, we do have people on there who do follow us there. Also uh, on IndieRadio.org, on LinkedIn, as well as also on Bizipedia, like I said, Facebook. Um, goodness, also on our website, www.pastlivesproductionsinc.net, as well as also if you uh, want to as well. Um, 
go on uh, again on also the websites as well and in world as well for superstar lounge bar you'd see me there as well hosting and for rock against hunger uh, to be able uh, to say hi to everyone out there and absolutely please uh, join us again next week and also join us again uh, steven it was amazing well thank you dear i'm hopeful that i was able to help a lot of folks get a better you know understanding of where they may fit in this whole uh, production process and what's important for them to do and at what stage they need the help and, uh, i love it and i hope that uh, i've helped people who are listening Absolutely. It's been an incredible help because it's like a lot of people really need to know this kind of information. This is the stuff that they need to know. If you are a filmmaker out there or even considering going into the entertainment industry, you need to know this information. You know, just as a, a shameless plug here, uh, I wrote a book that's on Amazon called Where to Go When the Bank Says No. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And in about four months or five months, the next volume of that is going to come out called Where to Go When the Bank Says No for Filmmakers. Because obviously, filmmakers are the most monetarily challenged people, (laughs) except for musicians, maybe, but anywhere. And so I want to give them the uh, benefit of understanding uh, a little bit about what their alternatives are because for 35 years I provided loans for entrepreneurs and filmmakers and fashion designers and musicians and so on and so forth so if they'll uh, keep in touch or follow me or you know however they can do it except for Twitter I have no idea how to do that but uh, or send me an email and say they're interested um, and to put their name on the mailing list so when the book is ready to come out I can put them on the preferred list and send them autographed copies. Uh, that would be great. So, anyway, sorry. Absolutely, for yeah. sure. It's like, and uh, are you going to be doing any book launch events that are coming up with that? Well, it's a little bit premature to think about that, but of course I will. And, you know, I'd love to include you and your program and Ken and. You know, in that launch uh, bunch of activities, that'd be a lot of fun. All right. Almost definitely. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, I guess we'll see everybody next week. All right. The same time. Absolutely. Same bat time. Same bat channel. Cute. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you guys again for allowing me to uh, join you to discuss these really cool topics with you and with your listeners. I love it. 